Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Pond Hunter Broadcast from the Under the Sea Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio. The Pond Hunter, in the pursuit of all things aquatic. Take a look into the world of koi ponds, water gardens, and the lifestyles of the aquatically obsessed. Meet the pros, hobbyists, and cover some no-nonsense pond advice straight from the field. The Pond Hunter, in the pursuit of all things aquatic. Here's your host, koi pond and water garden expert, Mike Gannon. everybody you guys ready everybody in well here we go welcome to the pond hunter radio broadcast everybody you are tuned in to episode 24 and i'm your host mike gannon happy to be here with all of you happy all tuned in and thanks for tuning in and uh since we're all here let's roll we have a really good show in store for you all tonight so let's get to it on this fine winter night i hope you're all doing well and uh, your ponds are braving the winter months like a champ. I know some of you are out there dealing with some really harsh conditions right now, some pretty massive storms, uh, snowstorms, ice storms hit the northeast recently, uh, you know, 48 hours ago, something like that. So I hope everybody's doing okay out there. Winter's definitely a tough time uh, with some unique conditions to consider, and uh, I think tonight's show will be pretty timely for some of you many of you. Tonight, we're going to be joined by a Pond Pros Pro. Demi Fortuna will be with us tonight, and uh, he is a pond guy of many hats, one of which will be the hat of our guest expert tonight while we talk about winter pond care. Demi lives in an area that got hit pretty hard uh, with some of the weather that I had mentioned, and um, he had to travel today instead of yesterday due to flight cancellations from the storm. So he's going to be on just shortly. He just touched down in Houston, and I uh, can't wait to get him on. Demi is a seasoned pond pro and has dealt with many years of winter pond keeping out in Long Island, New York, where conditions can get as brutal as anywhere, as was recently demonstrated by Mother Nature <laughs> just a couple of days ago. Um, Demi is also the new president of the IPPCA, the International Professional Pond Contractors Association, and a representative of Atlantic Water Gardens. He's a hobbyist, a professional, an educator, and owner of a a pond business as well, August Moon Designs, out in Long Island, New York. And, um, you know, he's teaching not just around the country, but all over the place, Mexico, Canada. Demi really gets around, and I'm pretty confident we're in for some excellent advice tonight, everybody. You can find Demi's articles in various publications, too, like Pond Trade Magazine, and he will be here shortly. If you want to talk with Demi, you can give a call to 914-803-4557, and uh, we'll look forward to speaking with you guys. Any questions, comments that you got, any input, insights for winter pond care? Let's hear from you guys. The last show actually kicked off the new year. Um, Did you guys hear that show? That was episode 23 of the PHRB, and I was joined by 
the publisher and editor of Pond Trade Magazine. Laura Lee Gellis and Peter Solaro joined me. It was a really fun show. Um, there was even some great koi grooming tips on the show. So instead of a pond skimmer, look for the pond trimmer to be coming out any day on your water garden retailer shelves. So Laura Lee and Peter were the guests. We talked about ponds, of course. We talked about Pond Trade Magazine and the industry and the hobby and what we might expect from the future of Koi Pond water garden lifestyle and business. Pond Trade is a great magazine for professionals and serious hobbyists. They would enjoy it too. Pond Trade also has a new website. If you guys want to check it out, pondtrademag.com. You can find Pond Trade on Facebook and Twitter as well. So Laura Lee and Peter were great guests. And again, you can check it out if you missed the show on blogtalkradio.com slash the pond hunter. Any shows that you've missed or want to hear again, you can find on blogtalkradio.com or on iTunes. You can listen to these shows anytime you like. You can subscribe and get the new podcast updated automatically also. Go to Blog Talk Radio or iTunes and just search The Pond Hunter. The show is really easy to find. And the archives are growing. A lot of good stuff in the archives. Hope you guys take the time to check it out. And if you do, um, give me a follow. I would appreciate that. Our next show, Tim Waddington is going to be joining us. Tim will be joining us to talk about concrete pond construction. I've been following Tim's work for a long time. He's owner at Quality Nishkigoi over in England, and he's also a top-notch pond builder specializing in concrete ponds. Uh, he's based in Warrington, England. Um, I think the business might actually be in Manchester, England. And he's going to be calling us and joining in for er, in his early morning hours, he's about five hours ahead of um, my tone, which my time, which is uh, Eastern time here in the great state of New Jersey. That will be episode 25, the big 25 on concrete pond construction, the do's and don'ts, and the many considerations of building a successful concrete pond. Tim will be going over all of that with us. How to design a, a successful concrete pond, how to create a successful concrete pond design. And a good design and a bit of planning will go a very long way and help with your overall success as a pond keeper. Part of preparing for a pond that will be successful and have successful winters starts with the design. If you're designing a pond that will be installed in an area that freezes, then that needs to be considered. How you build in Florida is going to be different how you build in Minnesota. In-ground, above-ground, concrete ponds, liner ponds, however you're building your pond, you need to think about how it will perform year-round, year after year. Um, there's some ways to make sure that your winter does not become a major factor. You can bring your fish indoors for the winter. You could build a structure over your pond if you want to take the time and energy to do that. Bam, do those, fish indoors, something over your pond. Winter is much less of a factor, uh, but you don't really get to enjoy your pond. For those who are not tackling winter issues by those approaches, we need to make sure our ponds can handle those harsh winter conditions. We need to know that we can confidently go into periods, 
of deep freeze without worry. And we need to know that our koi, goldfish, and livestock are not going to freeze and die because we did not plan right and are not managing our ponds right. Demi and I will be laying out some guidelines for your successful winter season. One question I see out there a lot is the question as to whether our fish will freeze during winter, of course. And if they do, what happens? Can they freeze solid and thaw back to life? That's that's kind of the question that I see out there. Can fish freeze solid and thaw back to life in the spring? All these shows, when we're talking about um, different advice and tips and tricks and suggestions, all of these are relative comments and they're pretty general comments because ponds are very specific and each pond is very, very unique and no two ponds are alike. So no two ponds are going to take exactly the same um, advice, right? So I always try to take a practical perspective on the advice that's given out on this show, meaning I try to present advice that will be relevant to the most likely scenarios that we as pond keepers are going to face. And with that said, I fully realize that there can be exceptions to any advice that you hear on this show. Any advice can have holes punched into it with unlikely scenarios, oddities, rarities, extreme cases, and the realm of theoretical possibilities. Since my backyard pond and the couple hundred backyard ponds I manage do not fall subject to the possibilities I mentioned earlier, I want to attempt to answer the question of, do my fish freeze into the ice and thaw back to life in spring? For practical purposes, let's say that the fish in our backyard pond cannot be frozen solid and then thaw back to life in the spring. A frozen fish and the majority of species on this planet will suffer irreversible tissue damage um, from ice crystals forming within tissue, which results in death when they are completely frozen. There are some highly unusual circumstances under which just the very right tiny window of conditions that one of our fish in our backyard ponds could freeze solid and thaw back to life. Could it happen? Okay, yeah, sure, it could happen. Speaking in the vein of practical, day-to-day normal circumstances in fish keeping, this would be a highly unlikely situation. For the purposes of this discussion, let's agree that our ponds, if our ponds freeze solid and our fish are frozen into the ice, when they thaw, they're going to be dead. Otherwise, I think many people might take up the practice of putting their fish in a freezer for the winter. Why not? Or maybe breeders and fish retailers could start shipping their fish frozen to our front doors and springtime comes, we thaw them out and toss them in the pond. Is the possibility of a freeze and thaw outdoor there? Yes. But let's be realistic and accept that this would be a highly unlikely circumstance. I don't want to give false hope to pond keepers that your frozen prize koi fish is going to live through being frozen alive in a block of ice. The good news is that if you manage your pond correctly during the tough winter months, you will not have to worry about the most winter conditions having a fatal impact on your pond. Fish do have natural antifreeze proteins that occur in their skin, gills, and gut, one of the many wonders of nature. Under the right circumstances, certain fish can handle sub-freezing, super-cooled water, but 
once ice crystals form within the tissue, the damage, you know, for all practical purposes is fatal. So for tonight's discussion, let's keep it practical. Let's say a frozen fish is a dead fish. Uh, so I want to kind of address that question that I see a lot out there that way. That's um, my take on it, at least. I'm sure there's other takes on it. And uh, I'm happy to hear them and share them uh, if they make sense. On a lighter note, apart from frozen dead fish, I hope everybody's doing well. My pond looks awesome. I do uh, here on the Pond Hunter Studios, in beautiful Summit, New Jersey. Um, I do the show always looking out onto my pond. It's pretty cool. So um, right now, you know, we got hit with that snowstorm as well. So it's frozen. It's got snow on it, and it's all lit up, and it just looks freaking awesome. Um, I do have some announcements for uh, some things coming up. Pondominium 2015 is happening soon, Pond Professionals. Pondominium hosted by Splash Supply Company February 4th, 5th, and 6th of this year. This professional event will take place in York, Pennsylvania. Pond pros will be gathering for this winter pond event for learning and networking. There will be hands-on training and presentations by pond professionals. Pond pros get geared up for the upcoming pond season. It's only weeks away. Spring is seven weeks away. Get yourself and your business ready to go at Pond Dominion. For more information, call Splash Supply. They are the hosts of this awesome event. And you can get in touch with them at 717-845-5671. Condominium, hosted by Splash Supply in York, Pennsylvania. Everybody check it out. Water Garden Expo 2015 is coming up also, also in February, February 26th and 27th in Shawnee, Oklahoma. This is a professional event loaded with some great speakers and topics, hands-on training and networking, best business practices, fish health, lake management, equipment seminars, lots of great stuff going on for those couple of days this year. The first annual winner of the Helix Distributor of the Year will also be announced at this event, and I look forward to seeing who that is. And tonight's guest, Tammy Fortuna, will be at the Water Garden Expo given seminars also. So keep an eye out for that. Um, that is February 26th. And 27th in Shawnee, Oklahoma, the Water Garden Expo 2015. We also have Demi Fortuna coming up, everybody. Demi will be here soon with some winter pond care tips, so get your questions ready. You can Facebook me questions and comments if you like. You can call in. The number is 914-803-4557 right after a word from the sponsor of this show, Full Service Aquatics. Do you love your pond? Full-service aquatics, water garden, and koi pond experts can give you a pond you can live with. Full-service aquatics, an award-winning water garden, koi pond, and water feature design and installation firm has been creating amazing aquatic environments since 1995. Got waterfall? Full-service aquatics can make your old waterfall or pond look like new with our waterfall, koi pond, and water garden renovation and repair services. Visit FullServiceAquatics.com or call 908-277-6000 to speak with a Full Service Aquatics pond professional today. That's FullServiceAquatics.com or 908-277-6000. Full Service Aquatics, a pond you can live with. Visit LoveYourPond.com.
Full Service Aquatics is going to be celebrating 20 years of providing professional pond services to the New Jersey area and beyond this year, 2015, March 25th, the big birthday of Full Service Aquatics. You know, it's tough out there, people. It's a cold, cold world out there, sometimes dangerous. And I say this while I'm looking at my pond. Things come into a very delicate balance during winter months of pond keeping. And winter certainly does not mean that we pond keepers have a couple of months off, a couple of months to simply gaze out on our ponds and enjoy the frozen beauty. Nope. We can enjoy it. But we still got some stuff we need to do, some things we really need to know. It's not that our ponds don't need any care. They need different care. Everything needs different care. Um, plants, fish, equipment, the area around the pond. So tonight, let's talk about winter pond care. I love the summer year with my pond. And some with some know-how and, and insight on winter pond care, it can be just as enjoyable for you, um, even in the deepest of winter. And tonight, my guest is going to be going to help with some great information. Demi Fortuna is with me tonight, and when he is not traveling around the country, educating hobbyists and fellow pond professionals, he makes his business August Moon Designs in Long Island, New York. He is the president of the IPCCA. Demi is a busy guy, and I was lucky enough to get him onto the show to share his experience with us tonight. I did it by the skin of my teeth. He is here. He just landed in Houston, Texas. Hey, Demi, are you on the line? Yes, I am, Mike, and I'm glad to be here. Hey, I'm glad you're here, too. We made it by the skin of our teeth, huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still actually walking out of the plane. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I'm glad I got you. I hope you – I guess you had a safe trip. Yes, I did. We just touched down. Uh, we're getting out now, and uh, I'm just looking forward to the – to working with you tonight. So uh, thanks for being so patient with me. I, I just rang in to say we were going to make it minutes ago. Yeah, no, it's it's great. And like you said, a good tailwind always helps, right? <laughs> it sure does. We came in 15 minutes early, thank goodness. Yeah, that's good. So Houston, that's a whole different ballgame. Well, I'm still sitting out here in the cold in your part of the country, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure Houston isn't dealing with the conditions we have right now. No, it's 73 degrees here, and it's supposed to be sunny tomorrow, so we'll see. Uh, we left 19 inches of snow from uh, Juno, was it, last week uh, when we left Long Island. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, winter storm Juno. So, yeah. yeah, I heard you guys got it pretty hard, got hit pretty hard. I, I think here in New Jersey we got away a little easier. We only got about six, maybe eight inches of snow, something like that. So not too bad, pretty manageable. But uh, I know Long Island, parts of Massachusetts just got hammered. Yeah, we were very lucky. We were right on the line. They were telling us three to four feet of snow, which can be a problem for, uh, for you know, everything. And we got away with about 19 inches, which is manageable. Uh, uh, everyone was off the street. So we got very lucky. And then just west of us got very little, and just east of us got creamed. So we were right on the line. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for, for being here tonight. I know you're you're super busy. you got so much going on. Um, I mean, going around the country, doing what you do, and, and also just being the owner of a small business. Uh, you're the owner of August Moon Designs out in Long Island. When did you start August Moon? 
Uh, actually, right after Hurricane Gloria, I took a part-time job cleaning up the mess. Uh, she kind of stomped us on Long Island in 1985. Uh, we yeah. were clearing trees for months. It was, you remember, right? I do. So I remember Hurricane Gloria yeah. very well. Yeah. So uh, the first call that came in in the spring that wasn't for clearing or fixing or cleaning up was for a pond. And my boss, who was more comfortable with the maintenance and, and construction of terrestrial projects, said immediately, we will, you know, we won't take this one pond leak. And I was sick to death of doing the cleanups and handling the chainsaw all the time. So I basically, for a couple of days, uh, I guaranteed him that the pond wouldn't leak, and I bet my salary on it. And to his, uh, yeah, yeah. He liked that part. That's the only reason we yeah. got the job. The, yeah. the deal was if, if I could actually uh, do the estimate, uh, get the job, do the job, and get paid for the job. There are four steps, as you well know, in oh, yeah. contract. Yeah. Any one of those steps falls All through and you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, then I would actually get paid for the time I worked on the job, and I might even get a bonus if we made money. And if not, it was coming out of my salary, and I'd be working for nothing because I wanted the pond. So yeah, it was a it was a disaster to say the least. Uh, uh, well, we we wanted to make sure it didn't leak. So uh, I worked with a Spanish stonemason. We put in uh, half inch rebar reinforcement on a two foot grid, so it was very very strong. Wired it all together. Uh, then we poured a a mix of cement that we thought would be very strong. And I hadn't done this before, so I called the cement company and said, I'd like a very strong mix. He's like, well, 2,500 feet of say, what are you doing? Uh, you're doing sidewalks, 2,500 feet of side, 3,600 feet of side. I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, I want it real, <laughs> real strong. He said, well, what are you doing? I said, I'm pouring a pond. He's like, you don't need anything really strong. I said, no, this, this pond can't leak. You don't understand. He's like, okay, well, we have a skyscraper mix that's 4,800 PSI. You don't want that, but I'll take it. And uh, we poured <laughs> this ma this massive 13-inch thick uh, bowl, uh, two of them actually, wow. one 30 by 40, the other 50 by 25 with a 20-foot long stream, about six-foot wide. And it was yep. massive. It was amazing. You could probably lift the thing by Sikorsky's eye crane. It, it, it never leaked. It never has leaked. But I had designed it without having any idea of what you needed to have to have a successful pond. So these were giant shallow bowls up on top of the subsoil in this new development where they had taken yeah. all of the dirt from the, the foundation and they had made these decorative berms. It looked terrible. It was it looked like the the mountains of the moon, only it was more sterile. It was uh, pretty bad. And uh we had put this pond up on top, and we knew it was going to settle, so we made it big enough so it wouldn't crack as it settled. But it was a giant bowl shape up in the wind, up on top of the hill in full sun, no plantings around. I had to go to the yep. local physics department at the university uh, to verify that we could actually lose six inches of water on a windy day in August to evaporation. And the uh, yeah. physics professor I talked to assured us that it made perfect evaporation plans, and yes, we could do that. So that was yeah. one problem. <laughs> we had also created the first two buffets on Long Island, 
these shallow bowls were just perfect for egrets and herons and raccoons to walk on in. Oh, yeah. And, uh, it was a mess. And then I didn't understand how to do the rock work naturally, so we we bought these beautiful moss rocks, our neck of the woods, uh, as, as I'm sure you're familiar with and, and uh, enjoy. We have these wonderful rocks that are great shapes carved by water with moss over them. I took those and stuck them like jagged teeth all the way around the perimeter when the cement was wet. It was hideous. <laughs> so it was, it was a pretty nasty job. It didn't leak. It did not leak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was, and that it, was at least one, and, one benefit. And I hope you got your paycheck because that was a deal that it, it wouldn't leak. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I had to clear one last matter up before I got my paycheck. The customers didn't want to pay for the pond because I wanted to make sure that it was also impressive for them. So I went to a local farm auction and bought a Gorman Rupp irrigation pump. Uh, when I went to the auction, I asked how big the pump was. She said, it's pretty big. I said, well, you know, how big is that? He said, well, it watered our fields. I said, well, what kind of fields? The side farm, it watered our fields. He's like, well, how many things? He said, all of them. I said, oh, that sounds big enough. I'll take it. Yeah. And then I went down to get an electric motor to run this pump. It was just the pump. And uh, the man yeah. told me I needed a 25-horse motor for it. And uh, the local farm supply didn't have a 25-horse motor. They had a 15. And I said, oh, that sounds good. Uh, he's like, well, do you have single phase or triple phase? And, you know, what what kind of line? I said, I have a plug. I said, no, no, no. All right. Take this. <laughs> see if it works. You should be able to. We put it all together, and it was amazing. I mean, four-inch lines and tons of water, oh, probably 40,000 yeah, 40, gallons an hour. But the display wow. wasn't nearly as impressive as when the first month's electric bill came in, and it was $697 more than the month before. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not happy customers. So. Yeah. That was my introduction to ponds, you know. Yeah. Right. Six hundred bucks a month on electric. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we figured it out. We tore, you know, we tore out the Gorman Rupp irrigation pump, and I told the guy at the farm store I hadn't used the electric, and he actually let me return it, and uh, we put in some swimming pool pumps because again I didn't know what I was doing. This was 1986, early in the spring, and. Uh, we yeah. had no idea about high efficiency pumps or asynchronous drives. I mean, we just didn't know, and uh, I didn't know anything. And um, yeah, sure. that's when I just started. Yeah, that's when I started to learn because I realized there was so much to learn. So yeah. And you know what? All these years later, I bet there's still stuff to learn. It's it's pretty oh, amazing. Yeah. It's oh yeah, it's I so don't broad. go to a single event. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. There's a there's a there's a ton to figure out, and I don't go to a single event where I don't come away with something I didn't know before. So, uh, yes, yeah. that's one of the that's one of the real delights of this industry. Yeah, always always something to learn. There really is. It, it's so broad and so deep. It's it's pretty amazing. And uh, so August Moon Designs, you guys are full service. You do installations. You do maintenance. You guys do everything having to do with ponds out in the Long Island area. Is that right? Yes, my sons and I are, are very fortunate. We live in an area where people are very interested in ponds, and uh, we get to do some very nice projects. Um, not as many as in the past, and I don't do uh, 
a whole lot of the work these days. My sons are strong and they eat a lot, and uh, yeah. this is one way to keep them fed. So we let them do all there the hard go. stuff now. Yeah, good. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, awesome. we have a good time. And luckily, in the last couple of years, I've been working. I, I have a. I wear a lot of hats. I have a lot of different positions, and one of them as uh, as director of product information and. Uh, sort of the, the construction liaison for Atlantic Water Gardens. We go all over the country doing demonstration yep. builds. I get to work with my sons, which is fantastic. Wow, that is that, that's that's yeah. a true benefit to that, no doubt. Yeah, what's it's a the, real blast. Um, what's the what's the website for Atlantic Water Gardens? Um, actually, I own the domain name www.pondman.com. But the website okay. down at the moment. Uh, we had uh, somebody find it and, and run spam out of it for a while, and I haven't had it up. So I've got to get that uh, back up. But, but we have a Facebook page that we get to show off some of the pictures there, which is kind of nice. Uh, okay. So there are, can there are. There. Yeah, just don't look at the restaurant and don't look at the needlepoint crafts out of Australia. We're the third August Moon Designs. So, and I've eaten at the Louisville restaurant. It's very good. If you ever find yourself down Louisville Way, it's a Chinese restaurant that's very good. August Moon Designs in Louisville. I had to go in and tell them and give them a card. Uh, kind of fun. Yeah, you should have should have worn in like a company T-shirt or something like that. Right. Yeah. I really should have. I would have left one there. They got my card up on the board, which was fun. So, but you just don't want to show up at a job site with the Chinese food T-shirt on. That, no. That's a whole <laughs> different fun. Get a, a second one. Well, yeah. <laughs> now you Although, also, you also, uh, we'll, go on. Go ahead. No, I was going to uh, say, uh, there, say there has been. Yeah. No, go ahead, Demi. I was going to say there's been a, a resurgence in popularity or interest in Chinese gardens with uh, with Chinese style ponds, a little different than the Japanese style ponds or koi ponds we're used to, but. Kind of neat. Anyway, yeah, I, I did a. I was working on a project in New York City at the Metropolitan, um, the Museum of Modern Art, for the Metropolitan wow. Museum. I always get them mixed up, but it was a a Chinese water garden, and in my mind, when I'm going into it for the consultation, I, I'm thinking Japanese water garden. I, you know, I, I have a good idea right. of what I think they're going to be seeing. It really, there's some. I think they're substantially different as far as their design approach, both beautiful in their own respect. So that, that's cool. I, that was a fun project for me to get involved with. I'm sure you enjoyed doing that as well. Very much so. Actually, we may, and we'll we'll see, I hate to, to jump the gun, but we may be working in the city on uh, a, a moving a Chinese garden that was done beautifully. Uh, they have a very interesting stone called Lake Taihu stone, which looks something like a, a lighter colored blue stone, beautiful uh, holes and, and sculpted forms. They actually farm these stones by putting them in rivers for years to develop these oh, wonderful wow. shapes. Pretty cool stuff. And the classical gardens, cool. yeah, the classical gardens are made of this stone. And uh, they're asking to actually move the garden to a new place. Which I thought was pretty interesting. So we'll see. That is see about that's that. Very that's interesting. Coming up in the spring, yeah. 
So well, it can be done because the the, the place that I worked on was it was a uh, it was over in China, and they the Chinese craftsmen um, artisans they over in China broke everything down and moved it over and recreated it within the museum piece by piece. So you can do yeah. it. If they can do it, you can do it. Um, you <laughs> also are the new. <laughs> You're the new president of the IPPCA. Congratulations on that. I, I saw at the end of last year you were elected the new president. Thank you very much, Mike. Yes, I'm very proud to be the head of the International uh, Professional Pond Companies Association. Uh, we're we're having a, a really good time uh, going forward with all sorts of educational uh, opportunities and initiatives, and that's really where my heart lies. I, that's That's what I like to do, and uh, we're developing programs now that will hopefully bring good information about ponds and other water features uh, to the public at large uh, in a really uh, accessible manner. That's what we're hoping. So that's, that's, that's been great. very exciting, and I'm working with great people like Rip Sokol and Mark Loss and Mark Gibson, just wonderful folks. Uh, it's really very exciting. That's great. So it's some things to look forward to with the IPPCA. And if um, professionals want to get involved with with that, how can they um, get involved with the IPPCA? Well, we are looking for members. Uh, we offer an awful lot to them, and uh, they can find out all about us. The website is changing from IPPCA.com to IPPCA.org as befits okay. our status as a not-for-profit organization. And uh, either a website, org or com, will take them to the, the website where they can find an application and see some of the many certification programs and educational opportunities. And those are being expanded now. And the, the memberships are quite reasonable, and they offer a, a tremendous amount to the contractor, uh, to the retailer, uh, in terms of resources that will help them better their businesses, and promote the water feature industry in general. One of the initiatives, if I might continue just for a second, we are sure. developing presentations, uh, best practices in pond building and in pond-free or pond-less waterfalls, uh, so that our members can take those presentations and using them as a base, develop their own presentations or use them straight and go to uh, all the different water garden clubs and koi clubs contractor associations, nurserymen associations in their area. Uh, people are always looking for qualified speakers, and uh, the presentation makes it pretty easy to have an organized, uh, very, very uh, tightly controlled time-wise uh, talk so you can set up a 45-minute presentation with the local arboretum or something like that. Uh, so that's that. Cool. we're looking for that to be very popular. Cool. That sounds like it would be a very yeah. handy tool for, for pond pros, no doubt. Well, uh, that in combination with a new certified professional pond retailer program that will bring the same sorts of skills uh, and certification to the retail side so that a koi dealer will be certified by uh, KOI uh, as a koi professional, that sort of thing. Uh, we're looking for it to be yeah. an exciting year. Good. Yeah, so people can go to the IPPCA.org and find out all about that. That's, that's great. So 
you're you're in 73 degree weather, but let me drag you back to the East Coast for for the rest of yes, the show. Please. We'll we'll talk about some some winter pond care. <laughs> yeah, and it, you know it's I always think since winter conditions can they can vary tremendously depending on on where you are. You know maybe you get ice, maybe you yeah. don't, but almost everywhere has to deal with water temperature issues. Um, so that's something that people definitely need to keep in mind when it comes to managing your pond during winter. And um, some of the water temperature ranges can have different effects on the pond. Um, what are some of the, the temperature ranges that you think people should be aware of as they head into or are within the winter months to make sure that their pond is, you know, is operating okay and going to be safe for their livestock? Well, actually, it's all about the temperature, Mike. Uh, basically, as we go into fall, uh, we have a period uh, from the, the height of the summer when temperatures are very high uh, through to when the temperatures drop to around 50 to 55 degrees. And in that time, uh, that's when people should set up for the winter. Uh, the fish will be, uh, they'll be a little off their feed when the temperatures are very hot in the summer. They'll start to have their appetite increase as the temperatures come down uh, into the 70s again. Uh, high 70s through 60s, they're eating like crazy. And at that time, uh, you want to prepare the fish for winter by feeding them a, a high-calorie, high-carbohydrate food that will help them bulk up. Uh, just like going on a diet of Twinkies because you're not going to be able to eat for the next four months. So you want to be nice and fast for the winter because right. you're not going to the the fish are cold-blooded. They're not going to be able to digest their food. Uh, and things, if they're fed in the wintertime when temperatures are below 50, 55 degrees, uh, the food that they eat because they're accustomed to eating will sit in their bellies and, and literally can go rancid or rot and cause some damage. So we're looking for that yeah. temperature uh, to stop feeding them. We want to bulk them up, get them ready for the wintertime, and then as the temperatures drop into the 50s, we want to keep an eye out around 50 to 55 degrees, we're going to stop feeding the fish. And that's fine. You know, a lot of my customers are very worried fish are going to starve, and it's really not a concern. They're designed this way, especially koi, which are a cold-water fish. Uh, they are yeah. perfectly adapted to hibernating for the entire winter uh, under ice uh, with a couple of caveats. Uh, we'll talk about how they have to... Uh, you have to be able to breathe under all that ice uh, in a minute, but those temperatures sure. are very important. Once the pond uh, has dropped into the 50s and continues on its way downward, uh, the, the fish start to live on those stored fat reserves. So it's important to sort of uh, keep their activity levels low. You don't want to burn up all those calories before they really need them in the dead of winter. So the pond sort of comes to a, a quiet or dormant state as the temperatures drop. And that's the time that you want to set up for the winter freeze. Uh, you want to be sure to get in your uh, gassing, your aeration uh, what, uh, system, whatever you want to decide to do. And there's a couple of ways yeah. to do that be before the ice yeah. actually closes off the pond. And, and that's also the time that you want to clear out the bottom of the pond before the temperatures drop to the point where uh, the fish are starting to go dormant. Uh, and you want to get out the heaviest of the debris that otherwise rotting will remove oxygen and possibly, without the presence of oxygen, actually add certain compounds like methane, hydrogen sulfide. Those are those 
nasty smells that come from deep muck when you disturb it down below where the where the water the oxygenated water can get to it. So you want right. to deal with that by sort of eliminating any thick muck layers, uh, getting out the organic debris uh, before the, the, the pond actually ices over. So right. So good good winter pond care actually starts pretty pretty early. Pretty and, early, um, yeah. That that kind of sets the stages for it. So when you do get to this time of year where temperatures are pretty much consistently, if you're in the northern regions, below 50 degrees, so your your fish aren't, like you said, they're not eating at this point or anything like that. You just want to know that, you know, you took the right steps earlier in the season to have a successful winter. Because even at 50 degrees, the, the fish, um, they're not very active, like you mentioned. They're not eating. Um, but there's some, some temperature ranges that you also don't want your pond to get down to because they can take it pretty cold. What what would be a low end temperature that the fish that fish koi goldfish will be okay with? And and what are the low end? When does it get too low that people should start being concerned about the the well being of their fish? Okay, well that's an excellent question, Mike, and it ties into that wonderful element we call water. Uh, water is one of the strangest of all the substances in nature because unlike just about any other substance, it actually gets lighter as it gets colder, and the densest water is above freezing. Now, in most other substances, the colder the substance gets, the denser it gets. But with water, the densest water is 39-degree water, which sets up a very interesting uh, environment for the fish in the wintertime. Uh, your very cold air comes down, touches the surface of the water, and starts to cool that water. It'll cool it down to 32 degrees, and a, form, a skin of ice will form over the top. The water below that ice now is not being disturbed by the winds, and the fish aren't making much movement if it's undisturbed, and that's an important point because if we disturb the water, we can actually bring warmish water, that 39-degree that very heavy water, up to the surface and cool it down below 39 degrees as it touches the ice. So we want to have so the water undisturbed kind of stratifies? Water. Yes, it certainly so does. And the warmest water is on the bottom, unlike the rest of the year. Uh, so okay. that's, uh, you know, people don't, don't think about that happening because it's just so strange. Why would the warmest water be on the bottom? But that's because of that very strange quality of water that's it's densest at 39 degrees. So you'll have 32 degrees water at the top, and then it'll actually be 39 degrees at the bottom. And usually it's, at most of the winter, it's a little higher than 39 degrees in the middle. But uh, you can get the whole pond to cool down much cooler than 39 degrees if you circulate that water and keep it in contact with very frigid air at the top. So right. we have a a different strategy for aeration and circulation in the winter time than we do in the summer. If we were to put a, a bubbler or an aerator uh, at the very bottom of the pond, uh, the air bubbles rising would cause a countercurrent of water uh, to replace the water that's being lifted by the air bubbles down to the very depth of the pond, and you get very good circulation, which in the summertime we really want to get uh, oxygenated water down to the bottom. But in the winter, Having that water go from the surface to the bottom, well circulated, that actually is problematic because you're going to start to 
lowered the temperature of the water below the maximum or the minimum it usually gets. So you want to set your aeration or your circulation device, whatever that might be, that's going to keep oxygen in the water and keep uh, carbon dioxide degassing or leaving the, the pond because fish are just like us. When, uh, when we feel like we're suffocating, it's not because there's not enough oxygen. It's actually a response to high levels of carbon dioxide. And fish work exactly the same way. So we want to we make sure we get that carbon dioxide out of the pond. We, we certainly don't want to build up a methane or hydrogen sulfide, the rotten egg smell. And we don't need to go into what the methane smells like, but everybody knows the odor. Uh, we want to <laughs> yeah. get those out of the water because uh, those are toxic in the water. Uh, so right. we want to have circulation, but we want to keep that circulation towards the surface, away from that deep area in the pond. So temperature becomes critical. The fish do pretty well at the temperatures in the low 40s down to about 39 in the deep water. Uh, and then if the, if the pond is circulated, they'll do relatively poorly if the water uh, temperatures go down to 33, 34 degrees. A difference of only, let's say, five to seven degrees is the same difference in a house that's heated to 68 uncomfortable or it's 61 degrees. Uh, you just aren't comfortable at those at those temperatures. Right. And if you're walking around without any clothes on at 61 degrees all winter, you're going to get sick. Well, right. you just don't have any clothes on, and the same thing's going to happen to them. So those colder temperatures will stress them. So uh, right. we want to make sure we have that warm water at the bottom of the pond. It's relatively warm at 39 degrees. We want to make sure we keep that undisturbed. And then, of course, so you don't, the you don't want it getting down to 34 because that, that's, no. that, that's super cooling, the pond, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, I've, from what I understand, if you get too much below that, um, ice crystals can potentially form within their gills and within the tissue, which, which is not good for them at all. <laughs> no, it's going to kill them. Unfortunately, there are fish in the Antarctic Ocean that can actually survive below uh, freezing. They don't freeze up. Yeah. No fish can survive being frozen island. But these fish actually have an antifreeze in their blood. Uh, koi don't have that advantage. And um, contrary to the things I sometimes hear from my customers, yeah, those goldfish were frozen in the ice all winter long, and look at them, they're just fine. They were frozen. Uh, they were they were below the ice. If they were frozen, they were dead. So um, you know, right. the, the fish can't survive freezing. So what the what the customer had seen is the thick ice above the fish, and then the fish swimming or or not moving very much because they don't move very much if they're undisturbed under that ice layer. Yeah, but they certainly weren't so frozen they, in. If they, they they appear to be frozen, right. but but not yeah. really. I think that that's something you know. There's there's some people, I don't know which side of the um, salt jar you sit on, but there's some people that mm. use salt in their ponds, um, in their water on a continual basis. I, I don't happen to do that. But mm. that also, with salt in, in your water, can, can make your temperatures get even lower because with a high salt yeah. content, your pond yeah. water is not going to freeze as much. So that, that's something for people to think about in the winter, for the winter months, is maybe to kind of pull back on their salt treatments a little bit so you don't experience any of those kind of issues because that, exactly. that can really uh, be, be a problem in the long run. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I um, 
it's it's amazing nature how they can put these um, you know antifreeze in, into mm-hmm. these proteins and everything into these fish. And uh, I was reading about that. The Arctic char, I think, is a fish that yeah. can actually freeze. Yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> but we're not keeping on Arctic char in our backyard. <laughs> now, no. the temperature of the water really affects um, water treatments as well. So you know, some people during the the you know the real season they're they're doing beneficial bacteria. They may be using algaecides and other types of water treatments or medications, salts, you know, we just talked about. Should What are your thoughts on people adding medications or algaecides or, or even beneficial stuff like bacteria treatments during this time of year when your water is, is in the very low temperature range? Is, is that something that, that is a good practice or would you not recommend that? I wouldn't recommend it, and the reason why, and I and I may be wrong on this one, but uh, my thinking is, first off, most metabolic processes go down with temperature. So the bacteria that are very active at 7 degrees or even 60 degrees, they're not going to be doing a whole lot at lower temperatures. Most of them will go dormant along with your fish. There are some that can and do work at lower temperatures. But if you've cleaned your pond out, the bacteria that – take care of uh, digesting the organic debris at the bottom of the pond. They like to use oxygen to do that. They're, they're basically uh, burning off the, the uh, calories in that debris uh, with oxygen. So they would be using up oxygen that you want to have there available for your fish, first off. And the rate would be relatively slow. So rather than continue bacterial treatments, uh, and there are two types, uh, the bacterial t- treatments that actually digest the sludge in the bottom, you can remove most of that sludge in the fall and uh, discontinue treatments as the temperatures drop below 55 degrees. Uh, I think that makes good sense. Uh, the other type of bacteria you don't need in the in the wintertime because they're going to be well-established, and those are the nitrifying bacteria that convert ammonia uh, to nitrite and then to nitrate. And there just isn't an ammonia source. Ammonia comes from the proteins in the food that the fish eat. Uh, that's, they excrete what we excrete. Uh, we excrete it as urine. Uh, they excrete it through their whole body as ammonia uh, and right through their gills. But if they're not eating, they're not excreting very much. So we don't have to worry about the colonies of nitrifying bacteria that are already there being overwhelmed in the winter. They actually have far less to do in the winter. So your systems are fine. As far as medication goes, this is my feeling. I've, I've, as, as we all have, we've all had, uh, you know, people in our families who've fallen ill. And as they fall ill and they are less and less active, medicines aren't metabolized as quickly by the body because the whole rate of metabolism drops. I think the same is going to happen with fish. In the wintertime, the same dosage that in the summertime, they will literally burn off or excrete or, or metabolize in their tissues. It's going to be sitting there uh, for a long time as they are, you know, almost completely dormant. So I'd be very hesitant about using uh, medications over the winter unless I absolutely thought it was necessary. Uh, really shouldn't be necessary. What you want to do is you want to prep in the fall. You want to make sure that your fish are at their absolute healthiest then. Yeah. Uh, you want to make so sure that medicating, yeah. medicating during the winter could, could actually create undue stress, even though you're trying to do a good thing for your fish. 
in uh, you know attempting to help them, you're probably creating more stress, and uh, they won't be able to handle that as well. So it could be a dangerous that, situation. It, it could be. That's a very good point. Your medications are typically something that a healthy animal can support, but the germs or microbes or bacteria that you're trying to affect can't handle. So what you're doing is stressing the fish out uh, to the point where uh, it survives, but the species that you're trying to get rid of, be they parasite or bacteria, do not survive. Well, that is significant stress on the organism, and I just wouldn't do that to the fish in the winter. The same thing goes for the amount of uh, activity or uh, noise or uh, other stimulus in the winter time. Uh, we like to see our fish as quiet as possible in the winter only because we don't want them using up those fat reserves, darting around, maybe hitting themselves on rocks. If somebody knocks into the, the pond or, or uh, taps the surface with a rock, uh, it doesn't work well for aquarium fish. It certainly doesn't work well for our pond fish. And there's another real, uh, really dangerous drawback to uh, compressing that ice surface Water uh, is a liquid. Liquids are technically not, not particularly compressible. So if you push down on a jack handle, uh, the, uh, the lifting side of the jack goes up uh, in a ratio equivalent to the force that you push down. The liquid doesn't compress. Fish, unfortunately, are, are uh, not liquid. They will compress. And if you slam down on that, on that ice trying to break the ice with uh, a hammer or a shovel, you actually send hydraulic pressure waves through the uh, it doesn't affect the liquid very much but it'll it'll actually hurt the fish you can you can seriously damage fish if you uh create concussion waves uh in that ice yeah. so we don't want to go whack in the ice for a couple of different reasons and there's perfectly right. good ways yeah. to avoid doing that so well let's talk about some of those cuz when temperatures get low enough for the pond water to start freezing um there is some great equipment that we can use to keep areas of the ice open so we don't have to go out and try to bang our way through ice, which is very, very difficult. And I will tell you that from experience. I'm sure you've tried it too. Yeah. <laughs> Not it doesn't thing, work real well. But there are no. a few different pieces of equipment that we can use as de-icers. And I don't mean a heater, but I just mean a de-icer in the sense that we can keep an area of our pond open and you mentioned one of them before, which are aerators, air pumps, which I think is, yeah. is an excellent way to, to de-ice your pond as well. How should somebody um, go about utilizing an aerator, which can, can be used year-round for various purposes? Yeah. I think it's one of the most important pieces of equipment a pond owner should have, uh, and it comes into a, a key role, especially this time of year during kind of deep winter. So if somebody has an aerator, what are some of the guidelines you'd recommend as far as utilizing that for de-icing um, the pond? Well, uh, for exactly the same reason that we want to keep it deep in the summertime where we're trying to get the, the cooler, less oxygen-rich water from the very bottom of the pond because it's isolated from the surface up to the surface and mixed, we want to do the opposite in the wintertime. We want to leave that cooler water uh, alone. So the aerator that's set deep in the summer gets moved in the fall to a shallow area, usually about half the depth of the pond, certainly below where it's going to freeze 
Uh, although the moving water doesn't easily let water freeze around a diffuser, you want to be down, if you, if you get six to eight inches of ice, you want to be down 10, 12 inches so that you're just below the surface of the ice or the, the, the deepest point the ice is going to reach. And you want to put that aerator, instead of in the middle of the pond down deep for the summertime, in the, in the winter, you want to put that aerator off to uh, one of the little corners of the pond that has a shallow area where uh, the action of the aerator, because aerators are very good at circulating water, especially if they're in deep water, you want to isolate that circulation to a little corner or a nook where it'll leave the, uh, the ice in that area uh, open uh, just just enough to have gas exchange. You want to get rid of your carbon dioxide, any buildup of the gases that occur as debris decomposes. And you want to have a place where the bubbling water can readily absorb oxygen into the pond as well. And unless your pond is very large, a typical backyard pond of, let's say, 15 feet across will be well served by one spot along the edge somewhere where uh, you have water uh, bubbling and uh, the ice in that spot uh, will not form. So uh, you do want to use an aerator very carefully in the wintertime. Uh, you hear Apocrypha, a friend of mine, I'm not sure if he was pulling my leg or not, but a friend of mine told me of an experiment where they put a powerful aerator, a lot of uh, air going into this uh, very, very good bubbler at the very bottom of a 13-foot deep pond in Wisconsin. And it was a very brutal winter. And the water from the bottom was brought to the surface and cooled and cooled and cooled. It was all in motion, and the whole pond dropped below the point of freezing. And at a certain point, let's say, I would guess somewhere around 29 to 30 degrees, the whole pond flash froze. I'm not sure if he was pulling my leg or not, <laughs> but, the, the, you know, you hear these things. Wisconsin, it, they, you know, they like to tell tales in Wisconsin on those long winter nights. But... uh the crazy, point is very Crazy, good. crazy stuff happens in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> and cheese curds. you got to love the place. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, the point, though, is, is, is very, very good. Uh, the point is that you don't want to take that warm water from the bottom and bring it up to the frigid air and keep circulating it. So you want to take your, uh, your diffusers. Uh, the diffuser is the part that the air comes out. The aerator itself is usually what we call the air pump, and they're connected by... Uh, a hose of some sort, uh, you want to take that yep. diffuser and put it in the shallows for the winter time. So uh, Yeah, and I, other, like you said, I, too, I, I typically go along the edge of the pond as opposed to putting it yeah. in the middle or, or trying to, you know, yeah. locate it somewhere else within the pond. Uh, yep. It's very important in the winter time. It's also extremely economical. It's the most economical way to keep water open in some small area for gas exchange. Uh, to give you, your yeah. your uh, listeners, some idea of the relative costs, if you were to get a stock tank heater or a de-icer, uh, these are the type that look like uh, flying saucers with an open coil on the bottom and some sort of stand yeah. to keep that open coil from touching the liner. Uh, those can often run 1,000 watts, 1,200 watts, 1,500 watts uh, for, you know, heavy-duty units. And even smaller electric de-icers where an electric element is in contact with the water and heats the water. Uh, hopefully, uh, there's two different types. There's one that, that attempts to heat the whole water of the of the pond the same way a pool heater would work uh, for your pool. And those are very, very expensive and uh, extraordinarily uh, complicated to set up. We don't use those typically in the Northeast. But these small de-icers can run many hundreds of watts. Even the, 
the more efficient ones are usually hundreds of watts. Whereas a, a pump, an air pump, that is capable of keeping six to eight inches of ice at bay in one spot along the corner of the pond might draw 25 watts. It's literally a tenth the power. And that adds yeah. up. People don't realize, but uh, 100 watts uh, is actually going to cost you seven, eight bucks a month in most places in the country. So, uh, you know, you, you have one of these large multi-hundred watt de-icers, the electric type, and you're talking significant. You notice it's like you put a new refrigerator in the house. You know, you notice the the uh, the, the electrical consumption. Whereas if you're running an aerator 24/7, it's less than the light uh, the the consumption of the light in your uh, refrigerator's light bulb the, when you open the door. So it, it's very minimal consumption in comparison to these electric heaters. And those are yeah, those are two of the of the ways to go. Go on. Yeah, definitely. And um I mean that's a, that's a big consideration with with you know I, I notice with a lot of um pond keepers and hobbyists and you know um customers of pond professionals is the overall cost of of running um your pond and what's involved with it. So those savings, you know, you save a buck here, you save a buck there, it, it really adds up over a period of time. I think one of the really great things that we we talked about with the aerators is that they're multifunctional. So it's it's, yes. it's de-icing your pond, but it's it's degassing, it's circulating to a minor degree. Um, so there's a yeah. lot of benefits from it. Then a floating de-icer is not as efficient at. There's no circulation with a floating mm. de-icer, um, no. but it will it will allow allow some gas exchange to to occur. Yeah. Um, if somebody's other- using a floating de-icer, where would you recommend placing that? Is there any special placement for them, or or just kind of toss it on in there. Okay, well, first off, they have to toss it in there before the ice. One of the popular misconceptions is that a floating de-icer will melt its way down through the ice, and uh, right. it just doesn't happen, uh, unfortunately. Nope. It can work if the ice thaws, and then the floating de-icer will drop into the water, but uh, there, there's that issue. Uh, there's also the issue of ice forming so rapidly or temperatures dropping so quickly that the... Uh, the icer itself is overwhelmed by the by the ice and actually gets crushed, and we've seen this happen yeah. uh, quite often. Uh, so we want to make sure that we have the deicer within reach for those situations. On the other hand, the small hole that a deicer makes would probably be best towards uh, you know the middle of the pond because they they don't tend to keep. Uh, very much uh, of, a, of a hole open, and as you had mentioned, there's no real circulation involved, uh, so they don't yeah. uh, aerate as efficiently, they don't degas as efficiently. Uh, there is a third option, but again, it's more costly than the aerator, and that is to use a small water pump to circulate water near the surface. Uh, and again, it's a probably, uh, you can find small pumps that will do the job, but it's usually two to three times as expensive to do that sort of circulation rather than using air bubbles to do the, the work. Typically, the rule of thumb is for a given amount of watts, a properly placed aerator can move 10 times as much water as a water pump can. And, and that's a real, really rough rule of thumb, but it gives you some idea of the efficiency of using the air. Uh, so right. just a, a, another way of doing it, but not a particularly efficient one. 
Yeah, I, I don't use uh, rarely. I mean, these days, I, I you know, we we probably manage a couple hundred pounds. I don't think I use a submerged pump as a de-icer in any no. of them, although no. it is an option. Um, yeah. And what I like about the aerators too, which is my favorite way of doing it, um, for so many reasons, it also you can you can have on those extreme conditions. Uh, you know, you, in our area and other areas, we get sub-freezing, sustained single-digit temperatures sometimes for, you know, a week, maybe more, the aerator, even though it may be frozen over, even though your open area may freeze, your aerator is still doing its job, not as efficiently as if it's open, but it's still doing its job because the the ice really isn't an airtight seal, so it can still degas the pond. It's just not as efficient. Yeah. So if people I'm see so that, glad you brought that, that up. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. So if they see that dome forming in your ice where, where your bubbler is usually bubbling away, um, don't feel inclined that you have to go out and bust that open because your aerator is not doing its job. It is doing its job, um, but you're just not able to visually see the effectiveness of it. Did you want to add yeah. to that? Actually, I did. Two two little things. Uh, I wanted to share with you kind of a funny effect that I've seen happen when the temperature gets really, really cold, and that's of an air funnel, an inverted tube that develops as the little bit of splash from the popping bubbles creates this rim of ice around the hole that rises and rises and rises and rises until you have this little snoot sticking up six, eight, ten inches in the air that looks, remember Cubert, the little green uh Video game sure. creature that had a funny. Story. I remember him. Just I like don't think about yeah. him a lot. I don't. I don't know why you're thinking about him. <laughs> it looks just like his nude. It's kind of interesting. Uh, the other interesting thing about aerators is uh, we we always have the problem uh, in the Northeast of power outages when it gets really really cold. Uh, mostly because we're heavily wooded up here and. Uh, you know, uh, when, when things get bad and trees come down, the power goes out. And um, with a with a pond de-icer, a floating pond de-icer, it, it's often uh, difficult for the de-icer, which might maintain a hole in open water as ice encroaches, it's very difficult for that de-icer to actually melt its way out of a freeze after 36 hours of a power outage. Aerators work differently. The aerator under the ice will stop aerating while there's no power. It needs the power to run. But as the power comes back on and the aerator starts generating bubbles, those bubbles have to find their way out, and they will, uh, no matter how thick the ice is. Eventually, what happens is you get a buildup of air underneath the ice layer as water is displaced by the rising bubbles, and the ice collapses of its own weight uh, somewhere. And you get uh, an aerator, even a small one, being very efficient at opening once again a hole in the ice uh, in the winter after a power outage where other forms of the icers just can't do that. Uh, So that's one of the other reasons I like them. And the last thing I'll mention, a lot of folks say, well, look, Mother Nature doesn't have aerators. Why don't uh, ponds in in nature freeze over and everything in them suffocate? And basically Mother Nature does have aerators. All of the reeds that are so common around the edges of ponds with hollow stems actually function to uh, facilitate gas exchange. And uh, in the rocks around the edges, as, as you've mentioned in, in uh, previous uh, episodes of the Pond Hunter, the rocks, you don't get a tight seal of the, of the ice to the rocks, so there's, there's cracks and crevices 
uh, where yeah. gas can exchange. So in nature, along the edge, there's there is gas exchange going on. So it's not as if right. uh, it doesn't happen in nature. In ponds, however, in our ponds, it's almost a given that we're going to have too many fish, that the levels of oxygen are going to be depleted much more quickly than they would in nature. And you do need supplemental uh, oxygen, especially with koi. You know how that works. Uh, people just love them to death, and they grow, and they get bigger, and they reproduce. And all of a sudden, where you had three or four perfectly balanced pond, now you've got 25 koi in there, and they're dependent on additional circulation and aeration. So it's uh, yeah. the, the area they, makes a good they, tool. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, if somebody is, is really in a bind and you just, you know, you can't, uh, scrape it together to get your aerators and deicers. If if you're just looking for a way to allow some, an open hole in the ice um, to a, a minor degree, you can use what you just mentioned. You can use a bale of straw, a bale of hay, uh, put it along yeah. the edge of your pond. You could. I've seen people. It's so funny what what hobbyists come up with. It, it, I mean, it's innovative. Um, I've seen guys use empty two liter you know, Coke bottles or whatever, you know, the empty two sure. liter bottles and they'll put yeah. those in their skimmer box or something like that because the ice can't fully form around that. Those are somewhat flexible. So there's creative, super inexpensive ways to uh, try to keep a, a hole in your ice. But if you can do any of the de-icers, um, I think both of us would recommend going that way first. So we yeah. have, once we've kind of dealt with the de-icing issue, we have our fish in there. Um, fish care this time of year is not a lot yeah. to do, but but it's very to me, you know, it's still very interesting to just observe the fish this time of year when you can see them. Um, what are the yeah. fish doing underneath the ice uh, this time of year, or at least in this very cold, cold? Does it not even necessarily frozen? But what are fish doing this time of year? Most of the time, they're sort of drifting around trying to use as little uh, of their energy as possible because as their metabolism slows, they get sluggish. But they also, I think, in some way realize that uh, that this is something they have to get through. So they're, they're, their metabolism slows. They're looking for the warmest places in the water. If there are small currents, they're, they're going to start sort of gravitating towards those warm pockets, wherever those might be. In a very, very cold winter, they'll go down to the very bottom where that 39-degree water doesn't get any colder, hopefully, unless there's a circulation. And then uh, as, as water levels warm, I mean, you can have uh, midwater in a deep pond that's quite a bit higher than freezing. They might be grazing on algae or, uh, you know, just sort of gently checking out the, the environment, but they're not doing a whole hell of a lot. They're certainly not uh, looking to... Uh, mate or or carouse at all, so you don't get that frantic spring activity as they chase each other around uh, during the spawning period. They're really, you know, sort of uh, sitting back and and relaxing for the for the long winter, and that's the perfect time to observe them, especially when the ice is clear, because the water is crystal clear. Uh, the algae that would normally grow, you know, above fifty five, sixty degrees, just aren't in there, so. Uh, you've got really nice conditions, uh, especially if you've got clear ice, to sort of relax and watch them gently float without moving very much. You can really inspect them. It's a great time if you have clear ice, and some of us do, some of us don't, but if you have areas of clear ice, it's a good time to inspect the fish for um, maybe parasites or uh, sores, ulcers, 
uh, anything like that. Hopefully you found them before uh, the, the, the ice, but it's a good time to take a look at them. You can look at blood streaks in their fins. There's all sorts of indications uh, when fish aren't doing very well that sometimes you'd have to catch them to see if they're moving around quickly. And under the ice, if you have those conditions, uh, you might be able to keep an eye on your fish that way. I certainly enjoy watching them just because they're extraordinarily beautiful and peaceful in the winter time. And uh, every now and then, my cat will go outside and try and uh, play with them. His, I think his intentions are uh, less uh, frivolous than, than theirs are, but he'll chase them around the top of the pond as they, as they float underneath. Um, it's kind of fun. Uh, they're not doing a whole heck of a lot until spring. And then, of course, they can't eat, and this is another thing my customers have to be warned about because their very good intentions lead them to want to feed those fish the second the fish come under that ice. And, again, there's that transition period from the 30s up to the 50s where they may come to the surface. They may be grazing on on algae. Uh, They may look like they're hungry. They're certainly going to be uh, at the surface here and there when they see a person coming because, of course, they're trained to come to the surface or we're trained to feed them when they come to the surface. I'm not sure who trains who with koi. They're they're pretty versatile. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Kind of smart. They have, a, they have a brain significantly smaller than a walnut, and they train us beautifully uh, to feed them oh, and take yeah. care of them. Yeah. Oh, I hop, I hop to it when they when they want me. <laughs> exactly, you know, and, and that's a that's an issue. People will come with the best of intentions and start feeding their koi uh, many many degrees lower than the, the koi can take advantage of that food, and that can sicken them. So. The, the same thing that we look for in the fall, we have to look for in the spring. We have to wait till the water now warms up to 55 degrees before we start thinking about feeding the fish. And we want to use the same sort of carbohydrate, easily digestible, uh, fat-producing uh, fertile, um, excuse me, a food because we want them to bulk back up again. They're going to be at their lowest ebb in the spring. Their immune systems will be suppressed with their metabolism. Uh, They'll have very few reserves left. Hopefully they have plenty uh, to get them through till the temperatures get up to 55. That's how they're built. But, uh, you know, it is a stressful time for them before they can eat, but as things start to get going. And uh, you don't want to stress them out very much. You certainly don't want to clean your pond aggressively then. Uh, Wait till they're eaten for a while. We, We have this... Uh, sort of ingrained idea that spring is the time for cleanups. That may work for us in our houses. It does not work for your koi. Uh, not until they're eating and they've built up some reserves. The last thing you want to do is go in there with net, scare them into hitting against rocks. Uh, bruises uh, will heal much more slowly when their reserves and their immune system are at their lowest ebb. And they just don't have the reserves to expend the kind of energy that they will expend trying to avoid the nets, et cetera. So one of the things I tell my customers is let them wake up slowly. Uh, in the spring, while they're coming up out of that sleep and the temperatures are slowly warming up through the 50s, uh, wait until uh, eating again, temperatures around 55 to 60, uh, and let them get some, some food back into them, build up some reserves before you go in and aggressively clean the pond again. I, I personally yeah. recommend cleaning in the fall because in the fall they're at their highest depth. They're the strongest, they're the fattest, uh, they're the healthiest and happiest. Uh, go in and, and mess with the pond then. Get all that junk out so you don't have to worry about it in the in the spring. Net the pond, 
before the leaf ball and then pull the net yeah. off when the leaves are gone. This way you don't have to worry about any of that. And you'll yeah. be doing your fish a great service. Yeah. And, and you know, it's it's true. My, I always get those those calls. Hey, I, I mean, I still feel tempted. When you go out, you get those yeah. kind of freak warm days. We all get them, you know, January, February, all of a sudden we have this 60-degree day out of nowhere. And the fish are up and about. And it's kind of like, oh, my God, they haven't eaten in a couple months. To, to really resist that temptation of feeding your fish is, is really important because they're still in a, in, in a state of torpor, even though they're, they're, you know, a little more active on that given day. But you had mentioned earlier that, you know, you feed them, and chances are they're not even going to take the food. But if they do, they're not going to digest it, and it can yeah. rot, and it can have – it can kill them months later – and then you yeah. you look at your fish when it dies that day, and you go, "Oh my God, what happened today that killed my fish?" Um, when really it, it could have been something, you know, like feeding your fish in January when it's just not the the right time to do it. Um, I've heard people ask a couple of times because you've seen it, I'm sure. The fish uh, tend to sometimes huddle together uh, at the bottom of the yeah. pond. And um, yeah. they say, oh, my God, are, are they getting together to stay warm and to keep each other warm? And um, that's not the case, is it? Well, actually, if you wouldn't mind, I've always wondered why they did that, and I never could figure it out. Uh, do you know? I think they're gathering in the in the warmer in the warmest part of the pond. Um, yeah. That's that's my my theory on that is that it's just they, they have found a warm spot of water, so everybody just kind of gravitates to that. But because they're, you know, the, the word, I love using the word like I, I actually use this word, but they're poikilothermic, which just means that their their body temperature is, is regulated by, by the temperature of the water. So they, they can't yeah. be keeping each other warm because they're not warm-blooded. But I, I do think yeah. they just go down to that, that area and, Everybody's like, "Hey, man, you know, it's, it's warmer here, so everybody just huddles together." But it's it's funny behavior. I've seen my fish; they're lined up like they're in a parking lot sometimes, all facing the same direction, one right next to each other, you know, <laughs> not in nose ahead of each other. It's it's very yeah. very funny. Yeah. It it really is a fun time of year to still observe your koi, even in deep winter. I, I hope hobbyists yeah. get out there and and try to do that, you know, and and kind of. It's not just a matter of looking out your window to make sure everything's okay. Take time, throw on your boots, and go hang out by the pond for as long as you can stand. You know the cold, the cold weather. Um, well, we actually we actually have a lot of fun with a couple of the effects that the ice can produce. Um, we have a small fountain in our backyard that's deep. the The idea with this uh, six foot long by three foot uh, front to back by three foot deep. Uh, feature was that we might go in it, you know, and make it into a jacuzzi at some point. And it, of course, it became a koi pond. Uh, it's a very small one. We only keep one koi and a couple of goldfish in it. But um, there's a little spitter uh, on the wall behind the pond. It's, there's a wall behind it. And uh, that only moves about 250 gallons an hour. It's a very small spitter. Uh, and then we have a, a, a little submerged pump and filter in the, this little uh, pocket pond. But in the wintertime, we put a light where the a jet of water comes out, and it's not enough to get down to three foot deep. The the water, this little 250-gallon-hour pump doesn't disturb the water any, but it freezes all the way back from the surface of the pond up to the mouth of the spitter, 
and the light that we put in the pond in the wintertime lights that tube of ice beautifully. It looks like we have a, a green man, this, this harbinger of spring with ivy in his hair. It's a face with the, with the mouth spitting water into the water, and it looks like he's, yeah. he's uh, vomiting ice that, that's lit into the <laughs> pond. It's absolutely lovely. It's, it's a really neat effect. Uh, and, of course, waterfalls uh, in the wintertime can be absolutely magnificent and oh, very man. dangerous as well. So we, you have to be very careful with what happens to the water coming down the waterfall. But uh, you know all all about what I'm talking about, those incredible ice sculptures, right? Oh, yeah. I, I always encourage people to go out and try to get some photos of those things because they're they're here and they're gone. And they they can actually change almost by the hour, depending on the on the type of day that we're having. But yeah, those ice formations in uh, different waterfall structures are are can be really pretty stunning and pretty beautiful at times. They really are. Yeah, yeah. And what we have um, to worry about, of course, is we have to worry that the water that's becoming solid is actually. Uh, taking away from the water that's in the pond. So we have to make sure that our waterfall doesn't get so magnificent that we've dropped the water level in the pond significantly. And, of course, uh, it's happened to you. I'm sure it's happened. uh, uh, It happens to me. uh, But you'll have ice dams build up on the waterfall or stream that can raise the level above the liner if you're not careful. So, you know, there are some things to worry about, too. But I like a a steep-sided stream and uh, and waterfall in the wintertime that, starts to freeze, the water keeps going in the middle, uh, especially if the winter's not too terribly cold, and it's just a magnificent effect. And I love to bury a light, uh, just drop it in the, the bottom of the waterfall. Uh, it looks great in the summertime. It looks even better uh, in the wintertime as the light lets the, the whole structure glow from within. So that, that's a very it it's a fun effect. It, it really is. I'm I'm actually looking out at my pond right now, and that's exactly what I'm seeing, just glowing lights underneath the ice, ice structures nice. all around the waterfall. It's, yeah. yeah it, it's awesome. So, you know, you just left a situation where, you know, we get these heavy snowfalls dumping down on us, and if we have a frozen pond, now all of a sudden we have a foot of snow or maybe even more on top of our yeah. pond. Um, Now, I think one of the things of winter pond care is actually getting out and and trying to remove that snow if it's sticking around for too long a period of time. I mean, if you get snow and then it warms up and it's gone in a day, don't don't bother yourself. But I think clearing the snow off of the surface of your pond has has some benefits as well. Is that a practice that that you uh, you do with ponds? I do. Uh, I like to sweep the surface of our pond. Our pond is uh, about 22 by 14 in the front yard, right in front of the front door. And in a, the snowfall like we had this, this last week, we'll get enough uh, snow on the pond where it will be absolutely dark in the pond. And, and when the pond is very dark, you can't count on the dormant but still functioning algae to release oxygen uh, while uh, – the sun shines, and and that can be a significant amount of of oxygen that can help. And, of course, as the the plants that are receiving light through the ice that that may not be able to receive any light through the snow cover, uh, those plants are also absorbing carbon dioxide. It's not as much as they do in the summertime. Of course, metabolic rates go up as the temperature goes up, but uh, that can be, I think, a significant uh, source of oxygen and 
uh, a significant way to decrease the carbon dioxide, and you lose that with the snow cover. And there's also a, a bit of a pressure factor too. I mean, uh, once you have you know a foot and a half, two foot of snow on top of the pond, I have a feeling it probably uh, starts to feel a little, a little dense in there for them. I have a feeling that they like to be able to see. They may even, and this is something I'd love to check out with some of the uh, the real knowledgeable people about koi, they may even have uh, vitamin production like we do in sunlight. And uh, I just I just like the idea of keeping that, that cover off. And there may, may be other good reasons, too. Uh, what's your thought about that? Well, I agree. I mean, I think it's important for the plants. I do think it's important for the fish. I, I don't want them you know, um, in a dark environment for too long of a period of time, you know, for, for many different reasons, even just for, <laughs> I know it's stupid, but I'm sure you can relate, even just for the psyche of the fish. I, I don't want them sitting sure. weeks on end in the dark. Um, so I, right. I do try to clear the snow. I, I think from a safety point of view as well, you know, if, if you, I live in a neighborhood where, not that I get a lot, but, uh, you know, there's kids all over the place. I mean, my my kids and other kids um, yeah. that maybe might cr- might come into the backyard. I mean, they love coming over and feeding the fish during the summer. A, a kid might, you know, a little second grader might say, I'm going to go feed the fish during the winter and not be able to really see where the pond is exactly. So it's a safety factor, too, to try to clear that snow so people can see, hey, there's a pond here. And uh, just be careful, you know, be careful in the area. And, um, yeah, you know, a big one for me, too. Go ahead. Um, Go a big on. one for me, too, is 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 uh, wildlife. Um, I still yeah. get a ton of birds and small animals that come and use my pond during the winter as their water source. So yeah. I see all sorts of animal tracks and everything all around my pond. So I see that there's a lot of stuff. I might not be able to actually capture it, but there's a lot of visitors to the pond who who need that water. So I'm conscious of that too. I, w- I want my birds and songbirds and everybody to have fresh, available, beautiful running water available to them all year round. So that, that to me is a, is a motivation to, to go out and clear that snow and get a little, ex- a little bit of exercise because it's not exactly easy, but it's, it's not too difficult either. No, and we need our exercise in the wintertime. I know I do. I don't even want to talk about my winter 10 because it hasn't been only 10 for many years. <laughs> but, yeah, we, we want to be active. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I love seeing the animals come to the pond that I don't get to see during the winter. The ones that have stuck around for the winter time are uh, really, really desperate for open water when it gets really cold all the water sources freeze, having something bubbling uh, at the edge of the pond with an aerator or having a a little waterfall going, open water will bring all sorts of really delightful creatures to the pond, creatures you wouldn't see normally. Uh, And, of course, some of the more colorful birds that hang around, like the blue jays and the cardinals, they show so brilliantly against the snow and the ice. It's just a real treat that I enjoy very much. Oh, me too. Yeah. It's, yeah. It is. It's beautiful. It, it is exactly that. It's a treat. It's just like, ah, oh, this is great. Check that out. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so to people, as prepared as we try to be, you know, you just you get caught off guard sometimes. And let's, let's say winter hits like it does overnight half the time, and you mm. don't have your aerator installed, you don't have your de-icer installed, and you need to open up the ice. 
Um, I think we've already established that that banging on it and trying to bust your way through (laughs) is not a good way to do it because you're stressing out the fish potentially to death um, and you're stressing yourself out. And not only that, you you break open the ice and in freezing conditions, two hours later, it's frozen again anyway. So it's kind of pointless in that sense. But what what's a good way for people if they need to create an opening in their ice? Um, how should somebody go about doing that? Well, it, it depends on the temperature for a thin layer of ice that just isn't letting you, you get your, your pondy icer in, or you, you forgot to drop your aerator in uh, boiling water works pretty well, but it takes forever to get the water to boil. And then it has a limited amount of effectiveness in thick, thick ice. Uh, so I prefer using the mechanical means of drilling through the ice. Uh, I don't have to put a lot of pressure on the ice. Uh, if it's thin enough for one of my hole saws as a contractor, I'm always perforating filters and skimmers uh, with three- and four-inch holes for plumbing. So I have that, that, those, that equipment at hand. That will only go down about two-and-a-half inches uh, before you bottom out. So for thinner ice, I'll use that. Or, you know, if it comes down to it and the pond is really uh, thickened up because it's really gotten cold and I, and I forgot to put my aerator in, I don't have my, my, uh, my de-icer in place, I'll go and use a spade bit and drill multiple holes until I get a uh, nice size hole. And I'll just, just Breaking up a little bit. I'm not sure. I hope you can still hear me. Um, yeah, so your your connection is is uh, a little bit broken up, but um, I think that, what you're kind of okay. I can hear you a little better now. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, we're still at the airport. I'm afraid. So yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah, we like to use a, a spade bit to open up the ice and multiple small passes. Yeah, and. And that's a, that's a really effective way to do it. I use a hole saw myself, like you said, a four-inch hole saw. I just drill holes in. You can drop down a yeah. couple of air diffusers if you need to. Um, it yeah. gives you a start or, you know, if you need to get a, a de-icer in there. It's fast. It's relatively yeah. quiet. And it's not going to stress out yeah. your fish or yourself. It makes it very, very right. easy to do some, some of that. So that's a great way to open yeah. up. Um, upon busting your way through is, is not it. And and also, I don't think people necessarily have to panic um, too quickly if their pond no. is frozen over because there are a lot of benefits during the wintertime to having that skin of ice over your pond. Um, primarily, sure. one of them is it's a form of insulation, and it, it can yeah. actually um, keep your pond a lot healthier than just being completely exposed. Um, some of the things that happen, like storms and everything, if you have branches falling and all that kind of stuff, a, a, a nice layer of ice over your pond is going to keep your pond from, you know, potentially being damaged or anything like that as well. So there's, there are some benefits um, to having that ice covered during the winter time as well. Yeah. Yeah. So people, um, I, I think, should consider that also. Yeah. Absolutely, and uh, that's something that we look forward to because we don't have to worry about cleaning the pond anymore once that covers on top. Uh, the the stuff that'll blow around, uh, 
just stops getting into the pond. Anything that blows into the pond, unlike uh, pondless features or pond-free features where debris that blows in blows out again, if, if something blows into your pond, it's in there, and we don't want to pick up a whole lot of organic debris. The ice actually keeps it nice and clean once it forms because nothing else gets into the pond. So as long as we have something on the edges, uh, we're pretty happy with uh, having the ice. Not so much the snow, but the ice. <laughs> yep. So let's run down real quick, and I, I know you you got to get out of there, but um, if you don't mind, maybe another couple minutes. The uh, sure. for equipment. Let's let's just run down some equipment care during the winter because again, sure. it's something that you you can't just take off a couple months and not have to think about your equipment at all. So with with right. pumps. Um, now we know that some pumps just can't be kept outdoors, so we're taking those off the out of the conversation. But with pumps. What are some of the maintenance that somebody should consider during the winter months? Well, one of the things I like to do is take the opportunity when I'm not depending on uh, circulation in the summertime when oxygen levels are in, in warm water or as low as they're going to be. So I can't really pull my pumps offline in the summer, uh, though, especially not at night. There's all sorts of reasons why you want good circulation in warm water at night in the summertime. Uh, as the temperatures cool, cooler water holds more oxygen. So in some ways, it's less stressful for the fish uh, as the temperatures cool. Uh, and that's the perfect time to do all of your maintenance. We didn't really talk about the plant maintenance of trimming back your perennial plants, uh, getting rid of your uh, tropicals and floaters that are going to die and drop to the bottom anyway. But um, at the same time that you're prepping for the leaf fall with your leaf nets and trimming your uh, perennial plants and putting them down deep so that the crowns don't get frozen in the ice, you can pull your pumps out. Uh, asynchronous pumps, magnetic induction pumps uh, that have a, a heavy rotor, these are the very efficient pond pumps uh, that are very common these days. They typically can build up debris around the rotor that spins to drive the the water flow, and this is a great time to clean those if you have hard water uh, in a little vinegar, uh, and then you can, uh, those particular pumps don't need to be submersed for the wintertime, so you can dry them off, put them on the shelf, and they'll be happy uh, for the, the winter. Uh, you can, I know people who prefer keeping them down deep in their in their ponds, keeping them wet. I don't see any need to do that. If I've cleaned it, I can leave it right in the garage until wintertime if I'm not running the pond. And if I am running it all winter long and, and in milder winters and in milder areas, uh, that's never a bad idea. Uh, I still have a nice clean pump uh, at, the, at the end of the year. I'm doing my filter maintenance at about the same time, so it's uh, it's pretty easy to do it. For direct drive yeah. pumps, uh, you want to pull those guys out, clean them up nice, and you want to keep those which have seals uh, very often. You want to keep those in a bucket of water someplace where they won't freeze, maybe in the basement or in the garage over in a warm corner in the garage uh, if you're pulling those guys. Uh, and those okay. direct drive pumps, the, those guys, the ones with seals, and many of them, almost all of them have seals that, that – uh, need to stay wet, though usually your pump uh, in documentation will tell you whether you want to keep it wet or you can let it dry, uh, will yeah. benefit from being in water. Uh, I want to just check my tubing this time of year. If I have any places that are um, exposed to sunlight, the cold will make the tubing brittle, and if it's already been degraded from ultraviolet, you want to make sure that any exposed tubing is in good shape for the winter. The last thing I want is a leak going into the winter time, so I just sort of yeah. check out the pond that way. I'm going to pull, of course, I'm going to pull my UV if I have a UV. 
I'm going to pull any pressure filters. If I have pressure filters, these are both units that sit above ground that water pumps through. And the last thing right. you want to do is leave them full of water for the winter time. So there's going to be that maintenance. Um, yeah, I may. And that's, uh, that's you know, I may they, if if they if those freeze, they're going to bust open and crack, and then you sure. you you know you're, yeah. you're looking at hundreds of dollars to replace those items. Oh yeah, especially when you're talking quart sleeves and bulbs of UVs or the 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 guts inside some of the pressure filters that are out there. Yeah, you you, you want to make sure those are uh, drained and dried and cleaned for the winter time and uh, put away um, until the spring, uh, until all, all chance of freezing. And and if you if you live in an area with with mild winters, it's perfectly acceptable to let a, a freeze a night or two come and go without doing any aggressive removals if you're pretty sure that it's only going to be a few nights of freezing. As long as water's going through those, they won't freeze right away. But for us up in the Northeast, we have winter that settles in and stays, and it just doesn't make sense for us to, to risk the equipment. So we pull that out right. in, the, in, the, in the fall as well. And then it's all nice and ready for us in the spring. Any maintenance that we've deferred, we can do over the winter. Uh, I know I like to sort of clean everything up in the winter uh, in the garage and all the equipment uh, while I have a little extra time because I'm not out in the field. So uh, that's always right. a, a good time to do your maintenance. And there's uh, different types of maintenance, but most of the time your magnetic drive, your asynchronous drive pumps, the pumps that have a, a rotor that spins when you when you plug the pump in, to drive an impeller and uh, and, uh, and force the water up. Most of those have removable rotors or removable impellers so that you can actually get in and clean the pump, check it out, make sure that the shaft that the magnet is riding on uh, is running true and isn't cracked. As, as those pumps start to, as the magnets inside those pumps start to wobble, they start to fail. So uh, you can replace yeah. a, a bad bushing or something like that if you're, if you're handy. Uh, and um, in general, the, the direct drive pumps you do less with. You just want to keep an eye and make sure those are nice and clean, you know. Um, right. As far as filters go, uh, it's the perfect time in the fall to start looking at uh, cleaning your filters out. Of course, you never, ever, ever clear, clean all of your filter media at once. I mean, that's that's a big one. I'll, I'll bring that up even though we weren't going to really go there. But uh, especially where you have uh, large fish in a pond, the uh, – bacteria that live in the filtration system that convert that ammonia from nitrite to nitrate and render it less toxic. Uh, ammonia is extremely toxic, toxic, toxic at, at about a part per million. You start to really see fish stress. So you don't want to drop those, uh, those uh, bacterial levels too low uh, suddenly, yeah. or you might get a spike in ammonia. So you never clean all of your filter pads at once. This is something I'm sure most of your of your listeners know already, but it's, it never uh, it never is a bad idea to repeat this one. So what we usually do yeah. is we'll pull the bot the bottom pads out, uh, clean those in pond water, hopefully, and then just put the top pads down on the bottom and put the clean pads on top to receive. And we do that once a year in the fall, also. So are you going to say something? Oh no, no, I'm I'm, I'm listening along. Um, what about skimmers? What type of care might a skimmer need this time of year? Well, most skimmers are set up with uh, low-density polyethylene, which is a, a very uh, resistant and very uh, flexible plastic uh, that doesn't particularly care whether it gets frozen into the ice. So if you turn off your pump and your skimmer's sitting there, you've removed your pump from the skimmer, um, the skimmer can freeze uh, 
without typically any damage. Most most skimmers are set up that way. So you don't really have to worry too much about that, although uh, some folks would like to, to prepare for really cold winters the same way they do with their uh, pool skimmers by putting in a crushable uh, floating you can use a bumper, the type, type you have for bumps, they have uh, for boats, they have those for uh, swimming pools as well. Or you can just throw a, a, a half-gallon milk container in, in there so if, if it gets really bad and you're worried about it, the container will crush and you'll have a void space that so you don't have to worry about the skimmers. But technically, I mean, although that may be very important where it's really, really cold, in my neck of the woods, we're a zone 7 uh, we don't do anything with the skimmers, and we don't expect them to ever have a problem with ice and snow. So, you know, people yeah. who have zone three, zone two winters, maybe, uh, you right. know, that's it can get cold. Yeah, and maybe, maybe, they're, they're, maybe that's. Uh, uh, but I can tell you, as a as a representative of uh, a manufacturer that makes skimmers, we have a, a guarantee on our skimmers that nobody ever uh, actually utilizes because they never just crack. You know, that's just it's a really good this LDP, this low density polyethylene is just really good stuff, uh, very very resistant to cold. So that's usually right. not a problem. We do remove yep. rigid baskets or filtration media that are in the skimmer. Uh, clean those out, put them on the shelf. It just doesn't. Uh, the the metallic matting, the the high quality premium type filtration material isn't really affected, but it's also not doing anything. And the freeze thaw cycles can degrade. Uh, the filter material. So we'll remove those if the skimmer's not being used. Uh, but often we're just yeah. running the skimmer in the wintertime. It depends on how cold it's going to get. So, uh, you know, yeah, it's, a, it's really... Go on. Yeah, kinda, I, I have the same thing. I really don't have many skimmer issues. Um, no. Just recently, we did have a, a quick spell a couple weeks ago of single-digit weather where I did have um, a skimmer that got, that got ice forming on the basket. Um, it was a rigid basket. It got some ice forming on it and started slowing the water from actually passing through quick enough, which, wow. you know, made the customer think that there was a leak and, and there was a, so that's, that's something that people might want to consider as well, just to check your skimmer box sure. here and there. Make sure if you see, if it sounds like it's sucking air or something, it might just be a matter of pulling out the basket. That's what I did and it solved the problem. So, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, all cool stuff. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that that'll happen when you had a really cold spell all of a sudden. Uh, yeah, and that, you know we've had those. Certainly, we've had some pretty wacky weather in the Northeast in the last couple of years. Uh, so I don't count anything out these days. Oh no, last year was brutal. And you know when yeah. when I talk about extreme weather because um, I go through it. And, uh, and and really, I mean, like, sub-freezing conditions, especially if they, they last for, you know, a pretty good period of time. But I think for everybody yeah. with some simple know-how during the winter months, pond keeping can really be a year-round adventure. And um, I want to thank you very, very much for coming on tonight and sharing your experience with me and with the listeners and making the show happen. Uh, you landed and you jumped off an airplane and you just came and did the show and I really appreciate that very much. Uh, I, I got to tell you. It was my pleasure, Mike. I've been looking forward to this, and I wasn't going to let an airplane slow things down. So I really appreciate <laughs> it. It's always a pleasure. I get a, a great deal of pleasure, and I learn an awful lot from uh, your radio broadcast. I particularly enjoyed listening to Kelly Billings 
uh, I guess that was December. That was just a wonderful, wonderful injury, and they usually are. Yeah. Just, uh, you provide a, a, an incredible service to the entire industry, and I just wanted to thank you and tell you I'm, I'm honored to have been invited. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah, Kelly, she's amazing. She's awesome. I look forward to having her back on, and uh, you as well. And, and, again, thank you so much, and likewise, yourself. You do a tremendous amount for the industry, and you just keep stepping it up, and and seems like you get more and more done. And uh, I do well, appreciate it. And um, I hope you have a great well, time out in Houston. I know you're going to be in. I certainly try. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again, Mike. I, I do appreciate it. It's All an right. honor, and it would be a real delight to be back uh, anytime you like. I will catch up with you very soon, Demi. Have a great trip, and uh, I'll, I'll talk to you later. You end that. All right. Have a very good evening. That was Demi Fortuna, everybody, from August Moon Designs out in Long Island, New York. Uh, he, for talking to me from Houston, he's, he's a very busy guy running around. He's a pond professional in many hats. And thanks again, Demi, for coming and sharing some great winter pond care tips. Congratulations on the election to president of the IPPCA. And uh, I look looking forward to seeing how you move the organization forward. Good luck in the ex- upcoming pond season out Long Island, and your continued work with Atlantic Water Gardens. If you guys want to catch up with Demi, you can find him on Facebook. His website is uh, August Moon Designs. Um, you can catch him at Atlantic Water Gardens and the IPPCA.org as well. And he's going to be at the Water Garden Expo that I mentioned earlier in the show, February 26th and 27th, giving presentations. And um, thanks again for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be with us. And um, yeah, you know, it's it's a great time of year to go out and enjoy your pond. It's a great time of year for photos. Um, I love those winter photos. I don't think we get enough of them. I don't certainly take enough of them. But these conditions, they really don't last too long. So if you don't enjoy your pond now, you're going to have to wait till next winter. Spring, thankfully, is only seven weeks, seven weeks away. So get some photos while you can. Send me some. When you take your photos during the winter, you'll get the best shots in the early hours of the day. Um, You're going to get the best lighting. Midday is just way too bright for good photography for the ponds. Um, And later in the day, too, um, you you want the lighting, you know, a little more subtle, not, you know, full day, mid-sun, full sun, midday lighting, just too much. So make sure you get some good shots around when the sun goes down, maybe get a nice winter sunset uh, with your pond photos. But whatever time... You're taking your photos, try to get some of those amazing ice formations. And uh, be careful. Remember what we said about the ice. You've got to be careful with the ice. You know, one of the things um, is ice thickness. You know, if you guys are working on around your pond, clearing ice, it's really important for the pond keeper or pro to be aware of ice thickness when you're working around a pond. Um, It may not be safe. If if ice is less than two inches, stay off your pond. Um, If it if it moves in any way, if you're, if the ice skin, if the ice covering moves or bobs in any way, stay off of it. Um, and if there's any areas of water on top of the ice, stay off of it. That goes for everything, even if you're looking for a place to ice skate. Um, four inches or more is safe to walk on for a typical human being. So um, keep that stuff in mind. Two inches, no good. Four inches, pretty damn good. Um I wish that those rules worked for everything in life. Uh, So anyway, yeah, 
if you survive your pond photo shoot and the ice thickness doesn't cause a problem, send me a picture. My email is mgannon, mgannon, at fullserviceaquatics.com. You guys can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all of those, slash The Pond Hunter. Or, you know, just go and search The Pond Hunter. Um, You can find more of the PHRB on iTunes and blogtalkradio.com, slash The Pond Hunter. I would like to give a shout-out to um, Annette McCauley. I see she is a new follower on blogtalkradio.com. Thanks so much, Annette, for becoming a a follower. I appreciate it. So a shout-out to you. I hope you're listening tonight or downloading and listening at your pleasure. So, um, and I'll catch you online. So some reminders, everybody. Pondominium, York, Pennsylvania, held by Splash Supply Company, February 4th, 5th, and 6th, a professional event not to be missed by pond professionals. The Water Garden Expo in Shawnee, Oklahoma, February 26th, February 27th. You can see my friend Demi Fortuna out there. He will be presenting there along with a host of other pond professionals. All sorts of great stuff coming on. On the next Pond Hunter Radio broadcast, Tim Waddington is going to be my guest. He'll be calling in from England. We're going to talk about concrete pond construction. Um, it'll be very interesting to get his point of view. He can tell you a lot more about that than I can. Um, it's not how I build, but let's talk about it and get some great feedback on a true professional who creates amazing work. You guys want to check out Tim Waddington on uh, Facebook. His company is Quality Nishkigoi. Um, so check him out. Uh, okay, so you guys, again, can connect with me on Facebook, Twitter. And um, let's see, what else do we got? Episode 25 of Tim Waddington. If you guys want to check out some more information about the IPPCA, go to the IPPCA.org. And I hope you will all join me next time. Keep warm, everybody. Keep spring in sight. Thanks for tuning in tonight. I'll leave you guys with a winter burner tonight, some hot music for all you guys from a band called Cabinet. So check it out. Well, now that doesn't sound too good. Let's try this. How about this from Cabinet? Another burner. And uh, I will be following up with the closing right after the song from Cabinet. Check it out, everybody. Here's another good tune for you. Sweet grass of summer Slowly fades away when all the leaves are colored They're here not to stay With the autumn breeze Throw the chill on my face But it's good to be alive today. Feeling well
Cannot breathe oxygen in hell. It just does not work that way. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, to the Bond Hunter Radio broadcast. I will catch up with you guys next time for episode 25. I hope you guys will all tune in, and thanks so much for tuning in tonight. Thanks again, Demi Fortuna. Have a good night, everybody. You have been listening to the Pond Hunter Radio broadcast on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Mike Gannon, the Pond Hunter. In the pursuit of all things aquatic, Broadcasting Wednesday nights on Blog Talk Radio. The Pond Hunter, keeping it pondy for the aquatically obsessed. Good night, y'all.